Today, we're really lucky to have one of the founders of EQUALS, a global language education accreditation organization which aims to foster excellence in language education and a great expert on the common European framework with us, um, Peter Brown. So I'm delighted to welcome Peter to the podcast to have a conversation about the evolution of the the CEFA, as I'm calling it, um, its intent and purpose, and what changes I've brought about. Just quickly to introduce Peter, as I've mentioned, he's the founder and board member of Equals, fantastic organisation. If you don't know it, please um, look into it further. Works with the Council of Europe um, um, and attends uh, ECML, uh, the European Centre for Modern Language Meetings, of the Professional Network Forum uh, on behalf of Equals. And of course, I believe you manage your own school in Trieste as well, Peter, so you're a very busy person. And I'd just like to say thank you and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Sue. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. And hello, everybody. Um, that sounds like a, a long list. I'm not sure I do all of those things, but uh, certainly the collaboration with the ECML is something to be proud of. And so is the being a co-founder of Equals. Um, but it gives you an idea to how old I am and therefore good that you don't have a camera on. May I, may I jump in or do you want to prime the pump and Ask me questions. Well, I, I maybe will just give you the first question, which is a very broad question, Peter, and mm -hmm. then off you go. So I was just going to start by asking you what was the original intent of the Common European Framework and what was the context in which this developed? Yeah, um, I wasn't part of the original uh, work that started in the 1970s. But let me give you a very simple and all too true story. It's a story from the 1990s and it happened to me personally. I have a lot of involvement in theatre. And one day uh, I was talking to uh, two producers, two theatre producers. One came from Sweden. He's actually a very famous guy. I won't tell you who he is. Uh, and his English is wonderfully idiomatic and superb. And I complimented him on it. And I said how wonderful his English was. And he said, oh, no, Peter, it's, it's, a, it's a bit intermediate. I've got a, and He said this with fluency and charm and ease and appropriacy. And about an hour later, I met a very famous Italian lead actor, really a stage actor. And he, too, was used to using English, and he used it for um, Shakespeare roles. And um, I asked him about his English, and he said, uh, Peter, it is advanced. And that said everything. Because, actually, they were telling the truth, and they were being right, and they were being fair and straightforward with, with their uh, self-analysis. But, of course, it was auto-referential. And that was the problem. How could you compare the fluency of one and the accented uh, hesitancy of the other? And they were both fair appreciations. And what happened at the end of the 1990s, after years and years and years of work uh, at the Council of Europe with a team of just four. Um, just four? Why just really, really wow. four. 
it was Brad North and, and John Trim and, uh, and, and a wonderful Irishman who was the, the head of the language policy division uh, at, at the time and, and a French colleague. And they really were the lead team. Uh, and uh, it's true that there were conferences and thousands of people like myself could contributed tiny little bits. But it was really the, the farsightedness of uh, John and the others who, who took this forward. And so what do we get? We get the move away from the self-referential when applied properly, beginner, intermediate, advanced. I mean, what does intermediate mean between A and B? And if you don't know where A is and you can't measure B, what does it mean? And they move towards a descriptor system. And it was a wonderful movement uh, because it was based on many very sound educational principles. And as you know, it moved to a set of descriptors and taking Jean Piaget's ideas, um, telling people what you can do, what you are able to do. And these descriptors attempted, and very valiantly attempted, to describe a set of levels. Um, the low levels, A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2. And if you remember, going back to the two, and I hope none of your academic managers do remember going back to 2000, but if you go back to 2000, 2001, at the launch of the original um, CEFR, what you then got were lots of um, private sector schools, quite rightly, interpreting it, trying to show people. And very often you've got little boxes with separate colours on them and like stepping stones going up. And that was a, a great step forward. It gave people a sense that there were, were levels and that they could be described. Unfortunately, however, they brought in some of the problems at the same time. Some of those problems were inherent in the CFR itself because it was work in progress and it was quite openly declared as work in progress. But the problems they brought, particularly in, in, in the private sector, were, were, were three, essentially, but there are many more, but there, there, there were three. One, the idea that each little block was exactly the same size. This is yeah. how they were portrayed, that to cover A1 was exactly the same as covering B1, which is exactly the same as covering C1. And Sue, as you know very well, it ain't like that at all. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's very different. The second thing that it had, and it was very, very worrying, I think, when we began to realise, um, was that it had clear divisional lines. They were separate little stones in ascending order. And even more worrying was that they had white space in between them. They were very often, not all of the, the, the designs were like that, but that was a very, very typical, a valiant attempt, a, a, a genuine attempt to interpret uh, what was being offered, a step forward, but it brought its own issues. And so I think the first thing that we need to share with colleagues, if you're not familiar with the CFR, please Look at the latest version, which is the companion volume, which was published in 2018 by the Council of Europe. And there are versions in many other languages now coming along, plus two supplementary volumes for young learners. They were put together by Tim, the late lamented Tim Goodyear, a wonderful, wonderful, young, very young guy. And he put 
together with a, a team who, who worked on this, um, to two young learner volumes, one for the, if you like, the 8 to 11, 7 to 11 age range, if you like, primary in many countries, and the other, the 11 to 15, the lower secondary in many countries. Um, and they're two separate volumes as well. But the one that we'll look at perhaps a little bit more today is, is the 2018 companion volume. Right, yes. And, and just to clarify, Peter, the, mm. the companion volume is, um, is in a way, I mean, it's not a supplementary text to the 2001 uh, um, publication. Sure, it isn't. It's, no. is it, would, would you say it's, uh, I mean, no, it's, it's much a... more than, than just an update. Yeah, it, it's first of all, yeah, and the, the point is absolutely correct there. So it's a, a text on its own. This you don't have to read, and, and strong recommendation that you don't read um, the two together. There's no need. It's been um, uh, filled out, if you like, in the 2018 version. So that's the one that you need to look at. Had you looked at the original version, you'd have seen that there were not one set of scales, but two. And this is key to understanding the CFR. One are a set of quantity scales. How much? How much? How many domains can you use? How much vocabulary? They are counts. They are to do with the quantity of language you can deploy. And there's a second set of scales that are to do with quality, to do with appropriacy and range. And they too follow A1, A2, B1, etc. And it is very important to understand that CFR is not one set of descriptors, but two quantity descriptors answering the question how much and quality descriptors answering the question how well. And we as, we as academic managers really need to look at them both. The other thing is that in the original volume, Work in Progress, and the, the, the companion volume is still Work in Progress. This is a massive, massive task that's been so brilliantly handled so far. Um, there were empty boxes. There were not a lot of descriptors for C2. There were very limited, and that was to do with the sample size. There were very few, and therefore very difficult to describe. Some components were missing. For example, the plus scales, B1 plus, B2 plus. We had an idea they were there. We even occasionally had the odd descriptor, but the work hadn't been completed, and they're very important. And there were some empty boxes that we had interaction and production but a, there was a little blank box mediation and mediation gets redefined it's no longer just translation it's how I render for example an image I have in my mind about the little stepping stones in the original uh, CFR to to all my companions and colleagues who are listening to this but can't see the image uh, that I have in front of me uh, and that's mediation uh, in, in its more modern sense. And it, it completed the task. It looked at um, A1 and pre-A1. It looked at A0. Uh, and it filled filled in many, many of the gaps. 
And what it did do as well is it allows us now to be much more accurate in our profiling. I think another point, if, if I have time soon, please stop me if, if, if I don't. No, please, um, please do, do, do go further, yes. Okay, that, that um, it allows us to be much more accurate in our profiling of our language competences. What does it mean? Um, we carried out a, a, a survey in Trieste on, based on exam results. Roughly 2.2 candidates per thousand, 2.2 per thousand, that's one in 500 roughly, were where all the speaking interaction, speaking production, listening, writing, reading, etc., were all at the same level. Just one in 500. Everybody else, you, me, and everybody else, maybe our speaking was better than our writing, maybe our reading was better than our writing, uh, or, for example, if we were doctors and we write a lot of reports, our writing was better than our speaking, and it depends. So we have profiles that we can easily be, for example, B2 in speaking and B1 in writing, and that's perfectly normal. And we can set targets. I want to improve my writing. I'd like to get to B1+. Plus. And we as academic managers can do that. We can go to the companion volume. We can look up the descriptors. We can dis, uh, choose, because you don't need them all, you can choose the ones that are appropriate to your context, to your learner, and set them as learning objectives. Can't do it yet. And then you've got stepping stones so that they can self-assess, for example, as, as much as you assess them. So I can't do it. I'd like to do it. I can do it with some help from colleagues. I can do it with the help of my teacher. I can do it if I look it up. I can do it autonomously. You can have all the gradients that you want as slowly you build up your academic program to get that learner up to the level that they desire. And it may be very different to the learner, that you, to the levels that you have, Sue, or the levels that I have. And that's perfectly normal and legitimate. We, we have to be very comfortable with that. Different profiles for different learners. And that's a great thing to have. Absolutely. It's that kind of idea of a jagged profile, yeah. there, isn't it, for, yeah. for each individual learner. And indeed, they can generate that for themselves, which which is, you know, such a great thing, really, in terms of self-awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is taking control, well, control is a big word, but taking control of your learning, or at least having a voice in your learning pathway. And that's not just for adult learners, that's for um, much younger ones too. We've just carried out a survey for the ECML and the European Commission uh, about how uh, COVID uh, impacted our language learning classrooms. And one of the things we did was we gave learners in secondary school some tasks to do that they could do as groups, as individuals, uh, in a debate, uh, the whole class, all sorts of things. And they loved it. They, they absolutely took, and they, many, many of them commented on, and they began to think about the difference between autonomous learning, group learning, which works best, how I can manage, hey, I can manage it myself. Yeah, all these things are coming out because the CFR helps us. It's a tool. 
and it helps us take these ideas forward. You've just raised another very important point. When you use the word jagged, which I like a lot, um, um, very, um, Brian and, and, and the, the, the team brought in the idea, which actually we've been using already in equal, and it's great, um, who cares who brought it in? The idea is it, it's there. The, the idea that um, languages are not to be seen as discrete blocks, but as a spectrum, and that they flow into each other. And that is a very, very important uh, concept for us as academic managers to, to understand. What does it mean? Well, the CFR does not tell us how we should go about things. It's not prescriptive saying you must do this. And it's not proscriptive. It's saying you should not do that. It's up to us. We know our learners and our contexts and our materials and our colleagues and our training. We, we know that. We, we have to be uh, in charge of that. But as managers, we also need to be aware. Suppose our target class is B1+. Plus, and we have the descriptors for various things. We know that not all the components will be uh, up to B1+. Plus. But very importantly, the CFR does not tell us how much of these do we have to achieve to be able to claim that we are B1+. plus. So this leads to the question. It actually leads to two key questions. Key question one, is your B1+, plus my B1+, plus? so we have to be explicit in what we do. And if we can quote some of the descriptors, perhaps on the oh, wait, great. It's the old mantra, and I know you, you guys were ahead of the game with the old mantra. Say what you do, do exactly what you say. And the, do you agree? I mean, you, I've, I've heard you say it. No, well, in the day, certainly, um, in in my previous lives with with Jim, you, you know, you remember Jim, Jim Bates, and yeah. we were. That was one of our mantras, absolutely, when we were talking to, you know, talking to schools or doing any professional development events. Yeah, and I heard Jim say it many, many times, and I loved hearing you uh, say it, because I, I, I believe you're so right. Uh, and the CFR allows us to do that in a meaningful and systematic manner that is not self-referential. That yes, yes. We can compare it, you and me. You're, you're, I'm in Italy right now. You're, you're in Dublin. And I'm in Trieste. And we can compare. We have a meta language, a professional language. We can talk about our B2 learners and we know what we're saying and we can uh, share this information with each other that it's no longer internalized, um, but it is shareable because it has these external descriptors. And that brings up the second key question. OK, we get our learners to be one plus for the key bits they want. So uh, spoken interaction was very important for them. And this particular class, they, they for technical reasons, they um, because they are computer programmers, they have to read a lot, for example. So their reading had to be B1 plus, whatever it is. The thing about that is that when you are at that level, you're not uh, in a prison camp only at that level. And if your competence, say, is 60 or 70 percent at B1 plus, you can be sure that you already have 30 
or 40% competence in B2. And going backwards to B1, you might now have achieved 90%. In other words, they are not discrete. I, I use the word prison camp. Then they're not, there's not barbed wire around them. Take the, the idea of, of the spectrum seriously, because it is a very, very good analogy that there are bits of color. If you're looking at, for example, the blue end of the spectrum, there are little dots of other colors in it. If you're looking at the red end, you'll already begin to see some orange and some yellow. It's, uh, I don't know if it makes sense, but it's a bit like a, a, a Roy Lichtenstein dot painting <laughs> where the colors have merged into each other. But that's a good description. And we as managers have to understand it's not that everything is boxed in at, in this example, B1 plus, that we have partial competences at higher levels and more complete competences at lower levels. And this allows us yeah, to describe them. And we can describe them to somebody on the other side of the planet. That's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Yes, it's great. And it, it takes that discourse away from proficiency. Do you, I'm old enough to remember when, <laughs> you know, when you were learning a language, this question would always be, you know, what's your proficiency? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it was always, you know, again, that, those very nebulous terms kind of, well, well, you know. I'm, I'm not I'm not a native speaker. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm nowhere but, near that. Yeah, that's the, the other question, I think, Sorry, Peter, just please. related to what you've mm. been saying there mm. is that, you know, how, you know, yourself, particularly in the B1, the very broad B1 band is sometimes I think there's a challenge with for for academic managers to really be able to demonstrate through the program design or through the various mechanisms they have that that learners are progressing even yes. though they're still within that broad band yes would would you would you like to comment on that yes very much and thank you for introducing it Sue because it is a real and it is a big challenge for all of us as academic managers um. You say B1's a, a big band. Again, I'm, I'm sorry I can't, I, I, I don't have visuals to share with, with colleagues today. But to give you a basic, very crude idea, if you think of A1 as a unit, A1, going from A1 to A2, A2 is double that. Going from A2 to B1 is double that. Going from B1 to B2 is double that. It's a crude analogy. It's a more sophisticated curve than that. It's a bit like a Gaussian curve, to be honest. Um, C1 begins to change and C2 changes because the relationship between quantity of language and quality of language changes quite radically. It's at C1, C2 that the quality of your language comes into play. And you've acquired most of the quantity that you're, you need to deploy your language competences and skills um, at, at lower levels, particularly B1 and B2. So you're very, very right. By the time you get into and so the first recommendation is we are not um, bound to just use the big chunks. First of all, we now have the plus levels 
which have been, and that's great. We can look at A2 and then to A2 plus before we go on to B1. And if that's still too broad, we may have quite relatively short courses in country, for example. Very often, uh, they, they don't last more than two, four weeks. This would be very much an industry standard. We are entitled to very clearly say, for example, B1.1, B1.2, as long as we define them. And we can define them because we've got the descriptors and we're saying in our use of B1.1. So we break it up. And for example, in Trieste, we do break it up. They're far too big because you're absolutely right, Sue. Learners need and must have um, almost a thermometer guidance to see that the milestones, kilometer stones, to make sure that they know that they're making progress. And it's not just that we as teachers are saying it to them, that they can see it for themselves. Yes, that's and, the important thing, isn't it? Yeah. They feel that sense of progress and, yeah. and achievement. Yeah, and therefore the question that I would encourage every academic manager to encourage every teacher to say is at the end of every lesson, say to the class, well, folks, have you learned something today? And get them to tell you what they have learned. I, I do that all the time. and They love it. And sometimes they'll tell you the most. You thought you were teaching English, but what they've learned is something about life skills or China. Uh, that's great because it helps them remember it. And, and that's a, one, a wonderful thing. Before we sign off, and I'm under your complete control here, Sue, could I just make a, 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 a mention about work in progress and things please, that are happening? Please do, yes. May I? Yes, yeah, please do. OK, one thing that I said, this is work in progress. Well, yes, of course it is. Don't think of um, languages as having ceilings. Um, that you get to see to and that's it. It's, so people wander around the corridor saying, is there life after C2? Well, you look at some of your great poets and playwrights in Ireland. And I think and remember, I live in the city that J James Joyce lived in. And please, please remember that he wrote Dubliners here in Trieste and the first third of Ulysses here in Trieste. And there are, yeah, and there are actually some of the things are pictures of Trieste. His description of rooftops is actually based on Trieste rather than Dublin. But that's another story. But you don't think James Joyce got to see to and stopped. And one of the beautiful things is that people coin language. They make words up. Good. Exam boards might, might not like it, but good. In a survey about how awful COVID has been for language learners, using masks, socially distanced, the stress, the lack of time, mm. one person, a, a student in secondary school, summed it up and said, it was all unliberty. She coined the word unliberty <laughs> to describe her feelings yes. and summarise it. Yes, and it, and it does it too, doesn't it? It does. Mm. Beautiful. But work in progress. So language is always work in progress. But there's practical things going on right now. You, you mentioned the European Centre for Modern Languages. Right, I just gave yes. it the website, ecml.org. 
A-T, I'll repeat that, E-C-M-L dot A-T. That has very, very good resources, very well worthwhile looking it up. Um, but two things that happened this week. One that happened to me two days ago. I was able to read an MA dissertation, very, very good one. And this person working in the healthcare environment had used the mediation scales to help her assess herself and colleagues as they were preparing because they are not native speaker. Um, they're not native English speakers. And they'd used the mediation scales professionally in healthcare work to, to show how they were making progress, what a standard could be for a healthcare worker. That's, and I read that two days ago, that MA thesis. That's wonderful application of using the CFR. Today, now, as we speak, in Graz, in the ECML, there's a meeting, there's an expert meeting, where they're, they're looking at creating a, a toolbox, an implementation toolbox for the uh, CEFR. This is headed by a wonderful guy called uh, Johann Fischer. He's very, very capable. I know Johann well, well, reasonably well. Um, and they're, they're, they're working on this now. In other words, tools are coming. Tools and application tools are being worked on right now, literally this minute, this minute, um, to help us do our job better. But don't be frightened by the CFR. It's a lot more accessible than you might think. It's applicable. And by the way, I'm not talking theory. We do this every day in Trieste and we do it to derive syllabus, to give our certification systems, to help people prepare for external exams given by external exam boards mm. and 101 other things. And we use the CFR on a daily basis. Was it easy? No, it wasn't at the beginning, to be honest. And the first edition in 2001 was not easy going. It's much clearer now, much more complete, much. It's been worked on. There's, there's 18 years, in, 17 years in between and a lot of progress made. And that's all incorporated in the companion volume. And uh, can it be done? Yes. And has it been done? Yes. And literally, we use it on a daily basis as academic managers and including young academic managers coming in. And what we do with them when they're in their very first year and their first very sometimes very timid steps as they, they're, they're, you know, these big beasts around. And what can I do? And so we get them to draw up a syllabus for a very specific band based on the CFR. You go and choose the disc and then talk it through with yeah. me or a colleague. Talk it through. And let's see. And, and, and after several months of meeting once every two months or so, we begin and then we test it. And how do we test it? We test that it's on level by cutting up the descriptors, giving them a blank, say, a, for example, a zero, uh, a one, a one plus mm. and say, Try and put these descriptors at the right level. And they may be just speaking or they may be speaking and writing. And it doesn't matter if they get them in the wrong level. Well, it does if they get them radically in the wrong level. But if they, it's the discussion that it generates. 
What does this descriptor mean? Ah, it's the adverb. Sometimes, usually, confidently, or whatever it happens to be. Exactly, yes, yes. And that's a great exercise to get people into it. I, I don't know if it makes sense. No, that's such a good idea, Peter. It's such a practical exercise, isn't it, to get people really manipulating it and 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 getting a feel for it in a very applied sense. I, I'm very conscious that uh, I've overrun time, <laughs> which sounds like me. Um, <laughs> I, and apologies. Oh, but to... Peter, that's been a great conversation and so rich and lots of things for all of us to think about and lots of really great advice. And um, and also your comment around the ECML as well. It's just so great to um, to to hear about that and to and that everyone's got the website address now they can have a look at it and see what's on offer so i'd like to thank you peter very much for giving us your time and um having this, this chat this morning and um thank you so much